I was in Rumbek, South Sudan. I, I'll never forget this, actually. And there was a national staff. We were staying in the guest house together. It was my junior. He was on his way to you know, one of the field offices. And we're walking, crossing the road to the office. And he looked at me and said, Wally, how did you do it? How did I do what, John? You're from Nigeria, right? I'm like, yes, I'm from Nigeria. How did you become a technical advisor living in London? And it occurred to me that that was the first time he was actually coming across someone that looked like him that was a technical advisor. Hmm. Although we do have a lot of people that look like me that are technical advisors, but for my particular colleague, that was the first time. Because in his mind, technical advisors are not black. They have to be white. So exposure, it's, 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 it's very, very important for people on both sides, mm. right? Um, in both the North and the South. Wally is technical director for the governance unit within the International Rescue Committee. What this means is that he helps people affected by crises to influence the political issues that matter to them, to retain and to exercise their basic rights. We talk extensively about some of the fundamental adaptation challenges for the humanitarian sector in the present moment. How do we think intelligently about the political context when we're engaged in emergency response? How do we need to update mandates and background assumptions, which in many cases date back to the Cold War? We also go in depth on his experience as a Nigerian who's come to work for multiple international organizations based in the global north. Some of these experiences over the years are not that pleasant to hear, but he also speaks very eloquently of the power of being able to hear differently and in some cases connect better with the people that they're aiming to serve. As always, I commend this as the perspective of someone who has thought long and hard and patiently about how they can best contribute to pressing global challenges. This is One Step Forward. My name is Ian Quick. Please enjoy. I do usually start these in the same place by way of introduction. If you meet someone socially, or in London, so I'll say at the pub, <laughs> um, at a restaurant, you know, at church, whatever. How do you describe what you do for a living professionally? Okay, so th the first thing I think um, is important to do um, is to explain what the organization I work for does. Because that, that, that way is easy, you know, to then, you know, um, segue, a good segue into what um, I, I do. So I, I work for the International Rescue Committee, I'm the acting um, senior director for the governance um, technical unit. So what we do at the International Rescue Committee is that we respond um, to the world's worst humanitarian crisis and help people whose lives and livelihoods are shattered by conflict and disaster to survive, recover and gain control of their future. What we class as, as success at the IRC are around um, five outcome areas. Um, so this is safety, protection, health, education, economic well-being, and power. So I lead the team that is responsible for aspects of our power outcome. Now, what does this mean? It means we believe it is of utmost importance to amplify the voices of people whose lives have been impacted um, by conflict and crisis. Um, so what my team does is to help them to gain control of their future by championing their rights to influence the issues that affect them in their cities, you know, towns and communities. For example, mm -hmm. if um, there's a health project, wouldn't it be good for the service users of that um, health service to have a voice on how the services are delivered to them? For example, what time do they want their primary health facilities to be open? Mm -hmm. You know, because it might be because I've actually seen this um, in, in in a previous job where the utilization rates, you know, people going um, to primary health centers was very low, and it turns out that the nurses are only available when people need to go to their farms, mm -hmm. right? So if you had consulted the community, 
then probably they would have informed you to say, hey, we don't want the clinics open between 8 in the morning and um, 11 a.m. because that's when we have to be in the farms. But if you can open between 1 and 4, we'll be available. So I'm going to take a step back and ask a slightly more biographical question. Where is your accent from? Where did you grow up? How would I define where I'm from? I'm from Nigeria. Yep. It's, it's simple. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know, I, I'm Nigerian that has um, fortunately or fortunately lived in the UK for too long. Um, which, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I, I love this country. Um, mm-hmm. I've learned a lot. Um, but I mean, and when people ask me where are you from, you know, I'm have a British passport, but actually, I'm first and foremost a Nigerian. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I moved here when I was 28 years old, so mm-hmm. um, my formative years, you know, was um, um, in, in Nigeria. But I have to say that I, I do not come from a typical Nigerian family. Mm-hmm. Right. What do I mean by a typical Nigerian family? I grew up in a university campus, mm-hmm. and um, that's in the Badon, University of Badon. Mm-hmm. And um, in a way, I was shielded from realities of life outside campus because I remember that I went to a boarding school in the north. Again, you know, in a gated community, you know, shielded from the realities of life outside a shielded community. And I recall when I moved to Lagos to start working, I had a culture shock. <laughs> you know, in your own country. <laughs> I kept wondering, why are people so mean? Mm. You know, there's no community spirit. You mm. know, there's no respect for the next person. Mm. And it, it, was, it was a rude shock for me. Um, and I, I then realized that actually I've spent a lot of time living in bubbles. Mm. And, you know, this is now, you know, the, the real world. Mm. It was hard, but I, I had to adjust. Yeah. It's sort of interesting because you went to school in Kaduna, no? which to to the layman or to the sort of casual observer uh, is one of the places we associate with North-South conflict in, mm. in Nigeria, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's, there's interreligious issues, there's farmer-herder issues, there's a lot of the sort mm. of flashpoints that we think of in Nigeria. But you... We're not much exposed to that, by the sound of it. You know, that's a very interesting question because... <laughs> okay, so I went to federal government college, Kaduna. Mm-hmm. So Nigeria has federal government colleges in every state mm-hmm. across the federation. And the whole idea is to bring students mm-hmm. from different parts of the country into one school. So we have 36 states in Nigeria and, you know you had representation from all 36 states. So you were in a boarding school with people from different ethnic groups, mm. different religion. And that was one thing that bound us together. You know, we call it pro-unitate. And personally for me, I, I was still saying, you know, recently on social media, you know, just reading the level of division in society, you know, in, in Nigeria as, as we speak, that I, I really do thank my parents mm. and the Nigerian government back then for Federal Government College Kaduna. Mm-hmm. Because that was where I learned that we don't all have to come from the same place. We don't all have to speak the same language. We don't all have to worship the same God before we can get along, mm-hmm. even when we disagree. Mm-hmm. And that was the spirit. Now, the wider society, like you said, you know, in Kaduna, the other um, farmers' conflicts or the Muslim-Christian thing, was in society, but it wasn't at school. Mm. Some of my best friends, I'm from the South, some of my best friends are Northerners. Mm-hmm. So we don't play that, you know. So when people really ask me, so where are you from in Nigeria? I'm Nigerian. Mm-hmm. But what part of Nigeria are you from? Does that matter? I'm Nigerian. Because I, I know where that question is going, right? You know, and I just um, don't like... And, you know, it goes back to, to a bigger question around the failure of many post-colonial African states to build what I would call a multi-ethnic nation-state. Mm-hmm. Right, so people still see themselves as, you know, in, in the case of Kenya, Kikuyu, Luo, Luya, or Somali, as opposed to Kenyan. Mm-hmm. You know, in Nigeria, people still see themselves as Igbo, Awusa, you know, as opposed to Nigeria. And it, it's because we've not been able to build a system and public um, institutions that focuses on citizenship. What is that pain that binds everyone in Nigeria mm. together? 
Mm. What's that public institution? There is none. It used to be the football team at some point, right? Because I, I remember back in those days when we had a very good national team in, in Nigeria. Yes. Um, the Super, Super Eagles? Eagles? Yes. They crashed out of the first round. Oh, yeah. I mean, they, never, they didn't even get out of the first round. Yeah. And, you know, we had a good team. And most of the players were from one particular sub-region in the country. Mm. Because that region used to be called Bendel State. Mm. They produced the best footballers. Mm. But nobody cared that they were all mostly all from Bendel State. Everybody saw them as a Nigerian team because they got into the team based on merit. So whether you're from the south, you're from the north, you're from the east, you're from the west, everybody cheered that team. That was one thing that brought us together as a country. But then, now that's even gone. Mm. Now I hear people saying, oh, there are too many you know, people from the south in that team. Oh, the only reason why the northerner is in the team is because of federal character. And I'm like, yeah, stop this. <laughs> stop this. Well, you know, that's, um, I, I think that's the, that's the challenge um, for you know, many um, African states, you know, the, the failure to build the state around the concept of citizenship. Mm. And, uh, and that permeates into the way politics is done, policies are made. Um, you know, it then becomes you know, very toxic identity politics, which mm. isn't helpful. Is that school still functioning? Still yes, it is. The federal government colleges are still functioning. But I have to say that the quality of education has plummeted, has really gone south, mm. because they are no, no longer properly funded um, as they used to be back in those days. Um, even before I left Nigeria in the um, you know, early 2000s, I think it was yet in 2000, I went to Kaduna for a meeting and I decided, oh, let me go to my alma mater. And I was shocked. You know, on how dilapidated the infrastructure was. Um, the students were looking, you know, very scruffy, shabby. And I, I just couldn't recognize my school anymore. And it was really very painful mm. to see. And um, yeah, so it's not the same as, as, it used, as, as it used to be back then. Is that a product of the, the wider sort of federal questions or, or tensions between? Uh, state and, and federal government. There was, Kaduna was the state that famously introduced uh, Sharia law sort of unilaterally at one point, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that was, um, you know, later on, ironically, Sharia was introduced when we, you know, moved from military rule to becoming a, a, a democratic, um, you know, country. That's yeah, a very strange episode. Is, is very ironic. Um, I mean, it just, you know, tells you that it's not, a question of democracy. It's a question of the values mm. of the you know of the political elite um, you know, in charge. I think what happened um, to unity they were called unity schools yeah. is is a microcosm of actually what happened to the education system in Nigeria. The military deliberately destroyed civil society mm. and education, you know, so that they could consolidate their power. You know, you have an educated Citizenry is very difficult for you to get away, you know, with some of um, the things that, that they, they they wanted to do, and I mean, they just did not place any value on on public services on on, on education. Yeah, so I think that's what happened. Mm. In addition to that, it was easy for them to start defunding education because of the structural adjustment programs that came that came into being in the early and, and, and mid-80s. And um, the you know, gradual weakening and, of, of civil society. Mm-hmm. You know, civil society became compromised. You, know, the, you had the leadership of the Nigerian Labour Congress, um, you know, going into some kind of un- unholy alliance with the military government. I mean, today in Nigeria, a state government has more money allocated to what they call security vote which is money that the governor does not have to give account for, there's more money for security votes than for the whole of education Mm -hmm. and health. Mm -hmm. That tells you a lot. I will come back to, I will come back to um, Nigerian politics or governance, but just to unroll the thread of your own uh, narrative a little bit further. So you went back to University of Abaddon, back to the nest, so to speak. But then 
not long afterwards, uh, moved out again and found yourself like, relatively quickly you know, working on issues of peace and conflict and, and, and governance because you went fairly directly into specific graduate level studies on this issue. So I'm curious how that happens. Two things conspired right, mm -hmm. to get me you know, to doing what I do now. One is my background, mm -hmm. um, and the second is an experience I had um, visiting a refugee camp. Mm -hmm. um, it, was, it, was, it used to be called Uru Refugee Camp. But you know, first, my, my, my background, as, as I said, I grew up in a university campus. Mom and dad were professors in the university. My dad also used to you know, write for several newspapers. He was you know, quite known columnist. And we used to receive like 10 complimentary newspapers every day. Particularly on Sundays, my dad would get my brothers and I to read the editorial of all those newspapers and we'll debate the points. So right from childhood, I was made to be politically aware mm -hmm. uh, and conscious of what's you know, happening in, in, in the environment. And as my dad will say, that if you say that you don't, care about politics, then politics will take care of you, right? So, you, you know. Then we were going to visit my grandmother, my paternal grandmother, who lived in, you know, uh, um, in neighboring states called Ogun State. Now, on the way to Ogun State, there was a refugee camp um, called Uru Refugee Camp. And we had Liberians and Sierra Leonean refugees mm -hmm. in the camp. And my dad decided to stop, you know, just to see, you know, the conditions. So this would be mid-late 90s? Um, it was early nineties. It was early nineties. Early nineties, yes, between ninety and ninety-four. Okay. And we stopped. We went into the camp. <sighs> what I saw, you know, the squalor, hmm. the conditions, the refugees, you know, lived in. It was unbelievable. I mean, as I said, I, I grew up in a campus, so there was a kind of nest. But still, you know, we still go out, you know, around the Badon. I mean, we see poverty, right? But mm -hmm. I had never seen that level of poverty. Mm -hmm. You know, you know, children, even in villages where there's not much, you know, they might look malnourished, but, you know, they still run around playing oblivious of what's going on. But I saw kids that just couldn't move because they were so weak, they were so malnourished. And this was a camp. And that really, really got me angry. Mm. And um, I just thought, I, yes, something needs to be done you know, about this. And I thought back then that oh, I'll do a master's in international relations. You know, but as I you know, did my research, I, luckily at that point in time, a center for peace and conflict studies was set up mm -hmm. um, in the university. And they had a program on humanitarian and refugee studies, mm -hmm. masters. So I enrolled into that, and I was actually the first set um, to um, do that program. So it was an 18-month uh, master's program, three months of internship. And uh, my internship, luckily for me, was um, with, with UNDP. Mm -hmm. But I was still interested in the conflicts in Liberia and Sierra Leone. And the question I always used to ask myself when, while I was doing that program was, why are we just responding mm -hmm. to humanitarian you know, crisis? Why are we not preventing it? That was why I decided, rather than UNHCR to do an internship, let me do that at UNDP, given that you know, it's that's the development side. Did my internship there. Luckily for me, there was um, the UN Electoral Assistance Program that was being implemented at that time. So I got involved um, in that project, then my internship ended, and um, my boss said, hey, who's going to do all the work that you've been doing? So I got you know, some service contracts, first as a research um, um, associate, then later became a governance um, associate. So I was with UNDP for about you know, three years. Mm -hmm. And um, I just thought to myself, okay, you need to go get yourself a PhD. And I did some research and I found um, um, the post-war recovery and development unit, mm -hmm. uh, you know, the Department of Politics at uh, University of York, and, you know, went through the prospects. I'm like, okay, this looks very interesting. It aligns with what I would really like to do. And um, I applied and um, there we are. Why did yeah. you feel that you needed to do a PhD? 
Ah, okay. So two reasons. One I can say is personal, you know, from a family point of view, and the other is, you know, from a professional point of view. So on the personal side, as you know, my dad is a professor, my mom is a professor, right? I'm the first child. There's an expectation okay. that the minimum was you get a PhD. You don't get a PhD, you're a failure. <laughs> failure, exactly. I mean, my, my parents pretty said the bar high. You know, I knew the expectation was there, but it wasn't something I thought about. Mm-hmm. till I started working for UNDP, and um, I worked with a lady called um, Angela Lusigi. Mm-hmm. Um, she had just finished her PhD from University of Reading. She was Kenyan. And she would, she, you know, I think she was part of the UNDP um, leadership program. Mm-hmm. So she was seconded um, to UNDP Nigeria, and she was the head of um, the policy and strategic unit in the UNDP. And I just thought, here is a Kenyan woman, right, young, mm. holding a strategic decision making position. What's the difference? Mm. Oh, right, okay. She's got a PhD from a UK university. Actually, if I want to make a difference, I need to get one as well. Now, that's going to make my parents obviously happy, but also professionally, um, it's actually going to give me more opportunities um, to do what I really um, like to do. Hmm. I'm going to ask the obvious question. You said... (laughs) You sort of pivoted away from the refugee studies aspect because the question you asked yourself is why are we just responding? Mm. But then here we are in a predominantly humanitarian sort of service delivery institution, like certainly with with plenty of nuance, but Mm -hmm. the IHC's core business is is engaging with emergency situations, helping people regain control in those situations, etc. It's slightly ironic, no? (laughs) No, it's not. Actually, It's it's not. Yes, so you can say we're predominantly a humanitarian organization, right? There's no doubt about that. But personally, I mean, this is me speaking, you know, as Wale officer. I don't find that dichotomy helpful at all. Mm-hmm. You know, this humanitarian development divide. The world we live in today is different from the world we live in during the days of the Cold War, where you had um, interstate conflict, mm-hmm. so you had clear demarcation of you know states um fighting each other but post-cold war era it's a different form of conflict the world started dealing with then you look at post 9 11 it becomes even more protracted mm-hmm. forms of uh, of conflict so this whole humanitarian development thing i just find it unhelpful because it's not either or it doesn't have to be either or mm-hmm. if the situation demands we go in to save lives because people's lives are at risk, yes, that's what we do. Mm-hmm. But if the space opens up to do some long-term, you know, resilience building work, recovery work, uh, and even, you know, some peace building work, we'll do that in a conflict-sensitive way. Mm. The point is, we have to make sure that at the minimum, we do no harm, and at best, we tackle some of the root causes of the crisis. So it's not a question of, you do humanitarian or you do development, you know, you can do both. Mm. And I think at the IRC, luckily for us, we don't have the problems that organizations have where they have a humanitarian department and a development department and they don't see eye to eye. We don't have that type of structure. You know, mm. our country programs have a you know, strategic um, action plan, which is reviewed on an annual basis. And what they put in that plan is heavily dependent on the context. I think it's fair to say there's a bit of um, frustration there about the state of the sector, if not the... Um, oh, for sure. ...the organization. Where is the sticking point there? I mean, what you just said sort of sounds reasonable, you know, sounds like common sense, but what in practice is the... Uh, where is the rub, I guess, is <laughs> if we're going to be Shakespearean about it. <laughs> I will say that part of the, the, the challenge, I, I don't want to say problem, I mean, I'd rather say it as a challenge, you know, because then we can begin to um, think about solutions if it's framed that way. Part of the challenge is the aid sector, as I see it, 
has not moved with the times, the way it's structured. A lot of organizations have mandates that have been set, you know, in the 70s, in the 80s, when we lived in a different world, and those mandates mm. are still operational till, till, till this day. And, um, you know, you, you can also take away the fact that a lot of people in, in the sector have invested so much in what they do. Um, they're passionate about it. They get very emotional. And um, asking them to think outside the box of what they do, it's, it can be quite destructive and challenging. Mm. Yeah, so it's, it, change will come, but it's going to come slowly. How do you manage that? I don't know if fear is the right word because that sounds too negative, but how do you support people in that regard? I mean, you're there to offer a sort of technical service in terms of how do you understand the stakeholder landscape and what the drivers of change might be and and how do you plan that out and so forth. But the the sort of people aspects that you mentioned, how do you... How do you approach that? I think the, the first thing that you know one, one needs to do, which I, I encourage my, my team, you know, fantastic um, people that I, I work with, we need to understand what others do. Mm-hmm. That's the starting point. Understand what they do. Understand the challenges they face. Then find ways to align what you do with what they do mm-hmm. in ways that advances what they do. Because people are bound to be more receptive if they see you as adding value to their work, right? As opposed to saying, oh, you know, you have to do this, you have to do that. I mean, they wake up every morning thinking about what they do. They go to bed thinking about what they do. They're not thinking about what you do. But if you understand what they do, then you are in a better position to communicate what you do within the frame of reference of what they do. Mm then that way you can, you know, move the needle. What if what they do is uh, a bit stuck in the past, as you put it? And I'm not necessarily talking about the IRC here, but more broadly in the sector. If the, if the model is changing or needs to change, mm. um, and sometimes you must bump into people who uh, just have a fairly old-fashioned view of things, right? There's a bright line between humanitarian aid and, and politics. I don't think that anyone in this sector deliberately would go out there and make and deliberately make things worse, right? You know, we want to serve people. We want to help, um, you know, people. That's what we, you know, what we're set up um, to do. Now, you often hear things like, we don't do politics. Mm-hmm. We cannot get involved in politics. There's a difference between politics with a capital letter P and politics with a small letter P. Mm-hmm. My view is anywhere you have people, power, and resources, inevitably there's politics. Because if you take um, Arod Lanswell's, you know, layman's definition of politics, who gets what, where, when, and how, mm-hmm. then as humanitarian actors, we bring resources to the table, we work with people, and we have the power to make decisions on who gets what, where, when, and how. Mm-hmm. That's politics with a small letter P. We need to recognize that. Now, that's not the same as us engaging in party political affairs in um, Kenya or you know in Thailand or in Bangladesh or Myanmar. Mm-hmm. No, that's 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 different, right? But just that self-awareness of our own power within that space in which we're operating in, it's so critical and very, very you know important. That's one. Two. I completely agree that we need to be neutral and impartial. But for us to be neutral and impartial, we need to understand the context in which we're operating in. We need to understand the local power dynamics. Because if we don't, we might go in there thinking we're neutral, but actually because we don't understand the context, we're actually undermining neutrality. 
So understanding local power dynamics means understand the politics of the place where you are operating. It doesn't mean you have to be political. However, because we're an organization that helps the most vulnerable people, which in other words means they are the least powerful in the environment they are in, wouldn't it be a good thing to empower them? And if we can find ways of empowering them without making the situation worse, why not? Why shouldn't we do it? I personally, I think it's the right thing to do. And in that instance, you become, in a way, political with a small letter P. I really want to emphasize, you know, the capital letter P and lowercase P because they're, they're, they're very, you know, different. So that self-awareness, it's very, very important for us to bear in mind, you know, our role um, and the power that we have within that space um, in order for us to actually put into practice um, the principles of neutrality and, and impartiality. Every humanitarian that I've met has got very good intentions. Mm -hmm. They really want to do good. They really want to help people. Um, but I have to say that sometimes there is this blind spot, which is the recognition or the acknowledgement that even when we go in to a um, developing country, if, you know, fragile state, um, you know, to respond, there's a blind spot where people forget that even within that environment you, that where there's crisis, there's still people who are what you can call local power elites mm -hmm. within, within that group. Um, the state might have collapsed, so maybe there's no government, but there are powerful people that make decisions for that group you are supporting. Don't you think that the best way to actually reach those people that you want to help is understanding what those you know, power nodes are? I mean, when you frame it that way, I believe you get more reception than if you just go in and say, oh, you know what, you know, you're doing the wrong thing. You know, people don't like to be told they're doing the wrong thing. You know, it's, uh, you know, but frame it within the mission, you know, the outcome, the goal. How can we get better results? You know, if we approach things in this way, we'll get better results for what you want to do. What would you define as the, the hardest part of that? In your experience for you? Time. Um, you often get very short turnaround um, to develop a proposal mm -hmm. and you know to do a nuanced context analysis you need some time right mm -hmm. um, but if you're lucky to have a long period of time like just recently in, in, in Northeast Nigeria where we knew there was a call coming out and we were gonna go for it. So we pre-positioned and we did our contextual analysis even before the call was released, mm -hmm. right? So when the call came out, we had, you know, we understood the lay of the land, you know, what the issues were, you know, the actors, um, you know, in that environment, who to engage, who not to engage. So it was easy, you know, to, to, to design. But in some instances, you know, the call comes out all of a sudden, you have a two weeks, if you're lucky, you turn around, sometimes 48 hours, um, and um, it's just no, mm. you know, time to dig in. The short time frame being a product of the uh, yes. project-based funding model. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So. Did you do the Northeast Nigeria context analysis? Have you, have you worked much on or in Nigeria since finishing your doctorate? Um, yes. Um, I mean, surprisingly, you, our program in Northeast Nigeria, I, I think very few people know this at the IRC. We went into Nigeria in 2012 mm -hmm. to respond um, to flooding in the Middle Belt in, in Kogi State. So we had a very small team mm -hmm. and uh, we're working through local partners. At that time, Boko Haram was operating in Southern Bono, you know, and they were displacing people into Northern Adamawa. We, we, you know, we went to Yola 
um, you know, spoke to key stakeholders, civil society, government, you know, private sector actors, and um, we recommended that we uh, moved into the northeast with field offices um, in 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 Mubi, mm -hmm. um, and um, you know support IDPs in five local governments in, in Northern Adamawa. So that was, you know, how IRC mm. got, you know, into the Northeast. This was 2014. I think towards the end of 2014. Then I went back in 2015, towards the end of 2015. By that time, Bono was, you know, I mean, I think Boko Haram controlled about 14 out of the 27 local governments, it was a you know, big scale, and there were a lot of displacements into Meduguri. Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, myself, and my colleague Andrew Moore went to do an urban context analysis, and I was shocked by the scale, you know, of the operation. Mm. Um, you know, our operation in in, in Meduguri. and I was caught in two minds. On the one hand, I was kind of happy and proud that the seed Susan Podin and I planted. A year ago, mm. when we had just about three or four people in the country program, mm -hmm. had grown into this massive operation of probably maybe about 400 staff, you know, helping IDPs. But on the other hand, I was sad as a Nigerian. <laughs> My country is becoming, you know, this crisis zone. And that's a very slippery slope. Mm. You know, and um, yeah, it's, uh, that, that was a bit, you know, chilling. But... So ever since then, I think every year I've always had course um, to go to the northeast to support, you know, one project or the other. Mm. So I've been there. Mm. Does, it, does that feel different from working in other contexts? I think it must. Mm, it doesn't feel that different working in other sub-Saharan African countries for me. Okay. It might feel different in Asia mm. or in the, in the Middle East, but in sub-Saharan Africa, it doesn't. It doesn't feel different at all. Mm. For me, I mean, um, I, I I don't like, you know, focusing on identity, mm -hmm. but in a way, you cannot escape your identity as well, right? So, um, some of the conversations I I am able to have, you know, with Kenyans, with Ugandans, with Nigerians, might not be the same type of conversations my colleague will, will be will be um, able to have. One thing I always try to do when I, you know, go out there is to hang out with the national staff, you know, go to their bars, their restaurants mm -hmm. in the evening with them, you know, just to build, build that relationship. You know. And um, when I used to work in Elpage, it was really interesting that consistently, you know, in Sierra Leone, in, in, in Darfur, you know, in, um, in Northern Kenya, we're in the meeting room talking about the project and everyone is, you know, saying the right things, you know, the national staff. Then I hang out with them mm. later in the day and we're having a few drinks, you know, talking about, you know, football or whatever topic. And then I start asking questions around the program and I get things like, oh, you know what, Wale, that's not going to work. Mm. You know, I'm like, oh, okay, why isn't it going to work? Right, okay, because you've not spoken to this person, you know, you've not, you know, I'm connected to that person, you know, our culture doesn't permit this, it permits that. But that's not what you were saying, <laughs> you know, in meetings. Oh, you know, we, you know, you guys come with your models from London and um, we just, mm. it's our job, we say yes, but it's not going to work. Mm. Right. Is that a conversation they're having with me because they see me as, quote-unquote, a fellow African brother? Mm. Probably yes, mm. right? So, I mean, I play to my advantage um, to make sure that we actually find ways of, you know, bringing the voices of um, such people into the decision-making process so that we can um, design interventions that will actually work. That's quite interesting, no? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I was, yeah. Particularly given, I'm sort of struck by the contrast between that and the way you described your early life as, as a, you didn't use the word bubble, but something. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> words to that effect, right? Yeah, right. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, 
I think the expectations tend to be different. Mm. Um, Is that true with um, other interlocutors as well? Like when you're meeting with government officials, <laughs> or do you think it's a different kind of, of conversation sometimes? Yes, it's a different kind of conversation, and also a different type of reception yeah. you get as well. So again, going back to LPH, because the, the, the research I was doing was very multi-law towards policy influencing, so influencing social protection policies yep. um, in, in those countries. And I, I recall once we, myself, another advisor, and an officer who was junior to myself and the advisor um, were in the minister's conference room waiting to meet the minister because we were working with the director of um, the social security program. And <laughs> the minister walks in. Mm -hmm. I was the first person he was going to come in contact with before my two British colleagues. Yep. He walks past me, <laughs> goes to shake the hands of you know, my two British colleagues mm -hmm. completely ignored me. Then when we were introducing ourselves, he then realized, oh, hang on, he is more senior mm -hmm. than the British colleagues. And it's not just happened once. It, so, so sometimes you still, you still have that, I'll say, colonial hangover, mm -hmm. you know, with a lot of um, um, African elites, they, they still... They still carry that, you know, they still treat people depending on, you know, the color of the skin, which is really sad. Yeah, so that, I, I mean, that happens. And on the flip side, you also get people that feel probably comfortable telling me what the realities are. Because they believe I will understand because we look alike <laughs> as well. Probably something to do with human nature. I don't know. Mm. But it's, it makes me feel quite uncomfortable. Mm. Um, because I, I like to deal with people based on their personality and their character rather than what they look like. Mm. Um, because that's just not helpful. Given that sort of experience, do you feel pressure to represent that perspective in a way like if pressure uh, from where from whom well pressure you put on yourself but having had these sort of conversations where you know a project assistant or or program manager or driver or whoever is sort of confiding in you right because they feel like you will hear them mm -hmm. um in a way that other people are not perhaps hearing them um does that put pressure on you to sort of represent that perspective do you, do you feel the need to speak for these people in a way I actually take it as an opportunity, mm. an opportunity to, if they need reassurance, mm. you know, to reassure them, um, an opportunity to make them not compromise the principles and the values mm -hmm. that we hold there, mm -hmm. you know, in the organization, and an opportunity to communicate those concerns so who needs to hear them? Because, right, okay, so <laughs> I need to be careful what, what, what I say here so it, it doesn't come out um, wrong, so forgive me if, if it does. There is an inherent tension that I often see, for example, in global workshops, where you have, you know, Western-trained, educated experts put myself in that category as well. Mm -hmm. And um, national staff who didn't have that type of, you know, Western education, there's a particular code, speaking code, that you and I understand, mm -hmm. right? But somehow we tend to assume, because everybody works in this sector, they understand it as well. So you might be saying X, but why a lot of people in the room are thinking about is you're saying Y. Mm -hmm. So there's a disconnect. And sometimes when you then, you're having conversations and, you know, people begin to wonder, oh, what, what's he saying? You know, he's, he's not responding to what we're talking about. I can pick that. Mm -hmm. 
and I'm able, you know, to explain in, I believe, a language. <laughs> I'm still speaking English, but in ways that makes them understand this is what we're talking about. Mm. And probably because it's because of my identity, probably, yes, because, I mean, I, I grew up sure. in, that, in that environment for 28 years um, before the meeting. So I, I, I see that, um, you know, a, a lot. Yeah. And, you know, we come from a culture in, in, um, in sub-Saharan Africa where uh, it's very oral, mm -hmm. it's very storytelling, mm -hmm. it's very symbolic, as opposed to very written um, culture. So you, you talk to program assistants and they, and they tell you fantastic stories of what's going on with the project. And they are thinking, why are you not writing that down? Your reports. <laughs> so it's not in your report. It's Yeah, it's not in the report. Yeah. You know, so people are good at, you know, mm. talking, you know. And I think that's part of our development challenges um, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. We never really had a cryptic culture of documenting stuff. It's very oral. Mm -hmm. in, in the sector, and I, I understand why, obviously, you not particularly like being sort of positioned in that way. People form expectations based on sort of who you are and what you look like, which is not ideal in any stretch, but it can be an asset, as you say. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I, I guess my question is, in the sector sort of more broadly, is this a question about process and ways of communicating and ways of hearing, or is this a question of... Uh, sufficient diversity such that there's always going to be you know a, a bridge or, or a point of, of connections it's both yeah. it's both because one reinforces the other yeah. right so if you have diversity mm -hmm. you know within the team of the organizers of the workshop mm -hmm. then that influences the type of communication style and language and all that mm -hmm. right so it's it has to be both mm -hmm. and um, I mean you're touching a very very um, you know, important point that it's very, very, you know, dear to me. Mm -hmm. Diversity and inclusion is so, so important in the sector. Mm. It is. I mean, for, for two reasons. One is, you know, from a practical reason and the other is, is the right thing to do. The practicalities of it is... <laughs> When you have people from diverse backgrounds on the table trying to solve a problem, they bring different skill sets, different life experiences to the table, right? That's better than if we're all thinking along the same line. And it's the right thing to do in terms of power dynamics as well. I mean, we shouldn't um, be shy um, to say this. Everyone that is honest knows that there's this not-out imbalance. That's, mm -hmm. that's just um, a fact. That not-out imbalance, for me, go, there's a bigger question which is much more global, you know, because the not-out thing that we see in the, the aid sector is a reflection of the bigger structural global power imbalance. I mean, I've also had experiences where, you know, I was in Rumbek, South Sudan, I'll never forget this actually. And there was a national staff, we were staying in the guest house together. It was much junior, he was on his way to, you know, one of the field offices. So we're staying in the guest house and we're walking, crossing the road to the office. And he looked at me and said, Wally, how did you do it? How did I do what, John? So how did you do it? How did you, you're from Nigeria, right? I'm like, yes, I'm from Nigeria. How did you become a technical advisor living in London? And that really took me aback, but it was, you know, after when the conversation went on for a while, explaining to him how that happened. And it occurred to me that that was the first time he was actually coming across someone that looked like him, that was a technical advisor. Mm. Although we do have a lot of people that look like me that are technical advisors, but for my particular colleague, that was the first time it was coming across that. Because in his mind, 
technical advisors are not black. They have to be white. So exposure as well, it's, 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 it's very, very important for people on both sides, mm. right? Um, in both the North and the South, it's, it's, it's really important. Um, yeah, so... But coming back to the, the sort of arc of your, your work mm. in the sector, I guess, um, as you say, it's been nearly 20 years. Is there advice you would give to yourself, you know, your 22, 23-year-old self, having been to this refugee camp and saying, I'm going to go do this master's in refugee studies and I strongly want to change the world and I think this is unjust. You know, what would be the, the nutshell of the advice you would give to that? Patience. Patience. Be patient. Can you elaborate? As I said before, change is not easy. Mm. It takes time. And one needs to be patient. I, I, say, I, I, I say to my team that you know, I, I have a very simple um, principle that I you know, try to use. And you know, maybe I'm giving away some trade secrets here. I call it camp. Mm -hmm. Constant applied minimal pressure. <laughs> That's very good. I'm going so, to steal that, let alone yeah, anyone else. Yeah. So it's, you know, don't be overwhelming, yeah. but be consistent. Mm. Application, you know, minimal. Actually, mm -hmm. you know, and um, people eventually come around, mm. but it takes time. You have to be patient. I think I was, when I left UNDP, I was very impatient. When I got to uni, of course, it was research, so that's a very different um, context. Um, then, of course, I interacted with a lot of undergrads because I was their tutor. Um, and you could also see the impatience in a lot of them, and that feeds <laughs> you know, into my own impatience as well. Then working for HelpAge um, for three years, that was when the reality began mm. to dawn on me. And I remember when I was leaving HelpAge, uh, you know, I, I, I did say, you know, it's ironic that I used to teach politics of development, Mm. Um, to undergrads and after three years in LPH I questioned what was I teaching those kids? <laughs> Is there a book or sort of mentor figure or inspiration if you will that's been particularly important for in you? In my journey? Mm. Absolutely. I'm Absolutely. Sure, I'm sure there's a lot but if you had to pick yeah, one to... Yeah, I'll pick two. I think the first one was a book my dad bought me in 1992 um, when I just finished um, secondary school, you know, high school. Mm -hmm. it, it was titled Sophie's World, written by um, Justin Gada. You know, it, it's a book that follows the events of a teenage girl living in Norway um, and a middle-aged um, philosopher who introduces her you know, to philosophical thinking and the history of um, um, philosophy. So it's a story, but... You know, history of um, philosophy. It, it was a great book to learn about many ideas that has shaped Western um, civilization. Now, the second book, which again was, you know, given to me by my dad after he, he read it, was Nelson Mandela's Long Walk to Freedom. Mm -hmm. I mean, that that's like a Bible for me. Um, I, I don't do God, so... <laughs> But, you know, Long Walk to Freedom, you know, published in um, 94. Um, I think I, I read that in my final year at, at uni. So th those are, you know, the two books that I'll say, you know, has had massive influence. I have some very interesting quotes from, from Mandela's book that, you know, I, I do have on my wall. Which ones? You know, um, when, when I get frustrated, angry, I just read it and I just... It calms me down. There's a short quote. Do you know what off the top of your head? I, I, I can paraphrase it, but, you know, so that I don't do, you know, um, the, the man, you know, something just because it's, it's quite long. And, and it goes like this. Quote, When I walked out of prison, that was my mission, to liberate the oppressed and the oppressor both. Some say that has now been achieved, but I know that that is not the case. The truth is that we are not yet free, we have merely achieved the freedom to be free, the right not to be oppressed. We have not taken the final step of our journey, 
but the first step on a longer and even more difficult road. For to be free is not merely to cast off one's chains, but to live in a way that respects and enhances the freedom of others. The true test of our devotion to freedom is just beginning. Then it goes on to say, I have walked that long road to freedom. I have tried not to falter. I have made missteps along the way. But I have discovered the secret that after climbing the great hill, one finds that there are other many more hills to climb. I have taken a moment here to rest, to steal a view of the glorious vista that surrounds me, to look back on the distance I have come. But I can rest only for a moment, for with freedom come responsibilities, and I dare not linger, for my long walk is not yet ended. End of quote. That's very powerful. It is. Very powerful. So every time you're trying to advance, um, you know, change, and you meet obstacles, it's something to go to and think about. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's a long. It's a long I tend process. to say there's one damn thing after another, which is a bit less, <laughs> a bit less inspirational, maybe. <laughs> I mean, that's that, that's life. Last thing I wanted to ask: Will you ever go back to work in Nigeria? You spoke very. Uh, passionately, I will say, mm-hmm. about the direction of things, um, which does lead me to wonder, is that something you will engage with? Uh, I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm married, so it's not just my decision, right? No, it's not. A, it's, <laughs> <laughs> no, indeed, it would have to well, be a collaborative So uh, my wife is going to listen to this, and I don't want to uh, get into <laughs> trouble. It's been going on, you know, so far so good, so... The way I'll answer that question is this. I would love to move back to Africa, sub-Saharan Africa, at some point. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be Nigeria. You know, it could be Kenya, you know, it could be Tanzania, it could be, you know, anywhere in East Africa or, you know, or Anglophone speaking West Africa, because mm-hmm. I don't, unfortunately, I don't speak French, one of my greatest regrets in life, for two reasons. One is personal and the other is, is professional. On the personal, I have two daughters. Mm-hmm. They were both born in the UK. Mm. Um, the first is nine. She's going to soon gonna be ten. The second is going to be seven in November. The first has been to Nigeria for a few weeks when she was three. So in a way, it doesn't count. They are very, very British, which is great. But I also want them to have a sense of Nigerian identity or African, maybe not Nigerian, African identity as well. And, um, and I think it will be helpful for them to live in a country where they wake up in the morning, 99% of people around them look like them. Mm-hmm. Right, you know, different perspective. You know, get to you know, see the world from, I mean, it's a massive advantage for them to see the world from both sides. Um, and on a professional level, it's about, you know, getting closer to the kitchen, to the heat mm-hmm. and, um, you know, making things happen because I know a lot of things can happen. Um, and I really, you know, um, would like to be part of that. Now, for retirement, which is a different thing, my dream is to move back to Nigeria, do two things move into a village, mm-hmm. work with the village to harness the resources around them, both natural and human, to make the world better, you know, for the community, right? Put into practice, you know, community development, work with that. And the other thing I like to do is to, you know, teach pro bono in the university, mm. you know, because I believe we need to begin... Uh, to develop future leaders, um, you know, for, for, for the country and the, and, and the continent. It's kind of interesting. Um, it'd be an interesting way to close a, a career, no? where you're dealing with these big global issues, country-level issues, um, bringing that right down to the scale of a village. Yeah, I mean, think global, act local. Yeah. Yeah, and, you know, yeah, I, it can be done. I fully understand the, <laughs> I fully understand the thinking. Well, let's let's end on that note. Then. Yes. And say thank you for giving up your uh, Thursday morning. Yeah, I enjoyed it. Sharing, um, sharing your thoughts. And thanks for you know for this. Mm-hmm.
You are listening to One Step Forward. We are all about stories of working for social good in hard times and tough places. My name is Ian Quick. Thanks for listening. And just a quick reminder, this podcast thing only really works by word of mouth. So if this episode resonated with you, please share with someone you know who might be interested. Rate us on iTunes or anywhere else for that matter. Join the conversation at onestepforward.fm. Thanks and bye for now.